Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, author, certified speaking professional, and CEO of Concord Leadership Group, Mark Pittman. Hey, what you drinking? So, hey, let, let's bring this conversation because I, I love, I love understanding the origin story of what has led to you being who you are right now. And one of the things that we talked about is how so many times we are scarred in our youth. And research shows that we have 67,000 thoughts per day and uh, 60 to seven, 60 to 70% of those thoughts are negative and self-critical. And 80% of those negative thoughts aren't even new thoughts. They're not even brand new thoughts. They're the same thoughts that we've been kicking around since we were 10 years old. So how do you, because to do what you do for a living, you literally do what many people say they would rather jump off an airplane and get eaten by a bull than do what you do for a living every day. How do you manage that negative self-talk when it comes up? Because I've learned that successful people aren't people who never have negative thoughts. They just bounce back quicker. So how do you bounce back when those negative thoughts, and it could have been the same negative thoughts that you had when you were 10, sneak into your 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 thought process well since we mentioned this before one of the it's it is exactly what you said it's the bouncing back quicker um i'm i'm think i'm wired to bounce back more quickly when a negative co- thing comes through my brain i automatically turn it to good and if i don't i bring duct tape so the silver so there's a silver lining to the cloud so i think i was early on had an ability to do that but i remember one time standing in front of um survey class freshman year in college giving an announcement and my voice shook i was quavering like i was just it was and and my self-talk was so bad and i had to do this in a number of times at that uh for that class for some reason the survey big lecture hall big for our campus and i was just berating myself how could i be doing this i'm speaking in front of people i wanted to speak in front of people why am i shaking what am i you know why can't i get a grip on this and this thought entered my head of if i were at church i'd call that the holy spirit in our church, shaking meant you're being overwhelmed by the power of God. And there was a, a container for that, an, an explanation for the experience. And so that's where one of the reframings was, ooh, what are we going to do today? You know, it's sort of like I get to play, I got a buddy playing with me. I got somebody else that's going to be helping me with this. Trying, And it's been decades of um, really trying to change the self-talk. Train, I don't know if you do this, but I get nervous every time before I speak. I know people can get money back. I know they can get resources back, but they can never get their time back. And I don't want to come to the end of my life and be asked, why did you waste people's time? Mm-hmm. I might screw up on, on fees or some other things and I'd, I'll make it right, but I can't give somebody back that 45 minutes or hour or two hours. So um, I really take that every time I, I stand up to speak and uh, th- that is just a, a sacred obligation. Um, so I do get nervous, but um, 
uh, I usually ask the organizer when it's me presenting and not emceeing. If I'm emceeing, then I I'm, I have a little bit better understanding of what I'm doing. But when I'm the presenter, I ask, is it the content or the time filling that's the most important? Hmm. I said, what do you mean? So, well, if I get the content done and we're 40 minutes into the hour talk, should I land the plane or should I try to drag it out so that we can stay on schedule? And nine times out of 10, they said, no, I want my, I want the people to love the content. I don't want them to feel like they're being dragged out. Sometimes there are scheduling things, yeah. but for me, that always centers me to be like, all right, I got this. And I always, I mean, I've been doing this so much. I have, I know how to do the time. Yeah. I never, I always land the plane on the time, which is the fun, the ironic thing, but there's always that self-talk of what if this is the time <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm going to run short <laughs> on my material. Wow. Wow. You know, one of the things that um, you did, and I, and I asked you to think of, of your invisible board of directors, and I'm not sure if you're familiar. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, uh, Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. This is directly out of that text. He calls it your invisible uh, advisors, I think. Since I'm a corporate dude, I call the invisible board of directors. But I would love for you to to kind of share some of the people that you have on your board because uh, one or two might be people that you would that I would anticipate. You've got several that I just I'd never thought about those people being able to influence in the way that you obviously experience their influence. Well, I loved this question because it really had me thinking and and after I submitted it, I realized I didn't um, have Oprah, which seems to be a theme of a lot of your guests. And so, sorry, Oprah, she's on my dreams list. I want to be uh -huh. positively interviewed by Oprah. I have that every year for the last 15 or so. But um, like one, two of the rock stars in my universe are Shifra and Pua. They are the, the uh, midwives that directly de defined Pharaoh and allowed the Jewish slaves to continue to give birth when they were told not to. As a person who's benefited from centuries of unearned favor and privilege and systems that are created for people that look like me to be able to just walk into a place and not have to earn the right to be heard, just to be heard. That story always intrigued me because we are told not to lie in the Jewish Christian tradition. That's one of the commandments. And they were honored for lying. Mm -hmm. um, and so as I've been studying systemic racism and, and privilege, one of the things I've noted, I, what I've learned is that they're subverting authority, subverting the power, you know, working against the system or thwarting it is that there's a shrewdness in that. That's so cool. And they had to have incredible guts to stand up to the world power of the time embodied in a person that continue to, to hold them in high regard. And that got me thinking about some other women like Alberta Williams King, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s mother. Yeah. We hear about the people that do great things, but what about the parents? What was it like to grow up in that house? Like, what did they put into place to make it so that they could do the things that they did? Yeah. So I've got some other people here too, because I really, I love some mystics, Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross were significant for me in my early journey in college. My roommate and I would grind our our coffee and open up the the mystics of the church and and start reading them, which was really weird behavior for somebody in their early 20s, late teens. But it really impacted me to be not so so legalistic. And it gave me, a, uh, I think, the, part of the humility. I'd like to say I'm proud of my humility. <laughs> There's some humility in the fact that I only see a part of the horizon. And I've got to always remember, I only get a little bit, a little snapshot. There's a lot more going on around me than I ever could know. Um, and that's what I think they bring to the table. Were there anybody uh, yeah. else that stuck out when you? No, just I, I, I picked up on, it, it really kind of intrigued me how 
you seem to find a lot of really, really significant, iconic people. And then you focused on having the person who inspired them or made them possible on your board. It's almost like one step beyond going to the source. So I just, that was just intriguing to me. Is that, is that something that you consciously do try to try to get to the source? You know, yes. Um, one of the habits that I've had and my wife and I have had is to look at people further down the path and ask them how they did it. So when we were, when we were starting dating, we knew each other four months, we were engaged four months and we were married. Then we spent the next three years wondering how we'd messed up our lives so badly. <laughs> and 27 years later, we figured we've worked it out. But um, all of a sudden when we started dating, we realized our parents weren't safe. We didn't realize that they had plans for our potential spouse. Like they had been planning this. We didn't know that, that that hadn't been part of the conversation. So we loved them and we wanted to have their input, but we knew they weren't, they weren't unbiased. Mm -hmm. So we looked at around us and we saw three married couples that we really enjoyed the way they seemed to interact together, the same the way they seemed to do life together. And uh, we asked the first one and said, we don't know what we're asking, but we think we got something here. And uh, we know we're pretty stupid. We could really screw things up. And we need somebody that doesn't have a horse in the race that can tell us, Hey, you know, you guys are way off base or you're not listening, you're not hearing correctly there. Could we just do life together in some form? Wow. So many times when we've asked that, I've asked that of people that I wanted to have be, have be my spiritual director or something, they're often freaked out by the question. But like with parenting, we were living at a boarding school. We knew we were going to have kids. And we had all these teenagers around and faculty families that had their own teenagers. So we started looking at the kids we liked. We asked the parents, what'd you wow. do? What were some of the things you did? Because we really enjoy hanging out with your kid. And that's the kind of parenting we want to do. So, yeah. yeah. So I think you're right. Going to the source is something that just made sense to me. And that's probably why I'm a Franklin Covey coach because beginning with the end of mind, I mean, it's yeah. just, and being proactive, I don't have to do everything the way it was done before. My parents though were brought me up that way too. They came from a lot of um, familial, I think trauma would probably be the right word. I hadn't wow. thought of it in that way, but a lot of problems and just mess. And they saw themselves as, Kind of like the, even though they didn't have the terms for this, the Gandalf on the bridge saying, you shall not pass mm. and putting the stake in the sand and uh, holding up, they saw themselves holding up a dam so that the generational crap didn't have to flow to my sister and myself. Yeah. There's some would say some hubris in that to think that you could stop that, but the intentionality yeah, of, yeah. even though we live near our grandparents and we could see how Wow. I mean, my mom was a family therapist. So we talked family therapy. We read family therapy textbooks in, as teenagers. So we had had an awareness of that being proactive, that we don't have to necessarily repeat the stuff of the people before us. But then to watch my parents age and realize, oh, <laughs> some of the stuff you stop, you know, maybe some of the things you focus on are the things you actually end up manifesting. So <laughs> maybe we should <laughs> focus on something different too. Yeah. You know, I, I have said a number of times that this parenting thing, was a whole lot easier when it was my folks doing it because <laughs> they made it look so easy and it's 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 hard to get it right and i think for me anyway it's when i stopped trying to get it right that i actually started doing some good and with all of the executive coaching because i want to talk to you about your coaching process with all of the executive coaching that i do and that i enjoy and and i think i'm pretty good at it it's hard to coach your family. <laughs> it's hard to coach my daughter. I think it's because I'm so vested and I just want so much for things to work out. Whereas 
in my experience as a coach, it's it's when I become non-committal to the actual outcome that I tend to do my best coaching. And so the outcome, I'm just curious about what the client is going to do. I'm curious as to how they're going to do it. And I'm curious as to how they think that's going to work out as compared to other things that they've done. But with my daughter, there's more than just curiosity there. It's like, I got I got a, I got a horse in this race. Do, do you struggle with the same thing? Or are you, are you ever called to coach relatives or friends where it, it's kind of hard to draw that line of being impartial to the outcome? I think that's what gave birth to the book, The Surprise and Gift of Doubt. Um, I had a client and it was a client that I really, I seemed to want his success more than he did. Mm. He would agree to stuff and come back to the next call and not have not having done any of it. And it was to the point where I wanted to pick up the phone and do the fundraising calls for him because he had a good, amazing offer. I knew he could raise, he was already raising half a million dollars a year. I knew he could raise more and systematically not like lurching and in, in fits and starts. And it was getting together with my peer coach who went through the Franklin Covey training with me 20 years ago and realizing it's not about your outcomes. He didn't hire you as a consultant. You're not responsible for his outcomes. Um, for parenting, and I hadn't thought about this. My wife's going through coach training at the time of this uh, interview um, also. And we both have been really intrigued as we watch our kids just become who they are. Like that, we always knew we'd only have them for a short period of time. And we have realized as we've seen other people say, wow, that must be hard or that must be challenging or did that crush your dreams? That we never went into this gig trying to live our our joys and our dreams through through our kids. Our kids have kids, great. If they don't have kids, great. It's our kids' lives. It's not, you know, my, my wife and I, it's our responsibility to have a fulfilling life, not our kids' responsibility to fulfill our lives. So I think that was probably that coaching mindset and not even realizing it, but yeah, non-committal. There's still, I mean, there's still the parts of, like I remember this one moment with my son and he, he allows, my, I would only share stories that they allow me to share, but I had this moment where, he was telling me about a choice he was going to make. And I thought it was a bad choice. He was in college, competitive with bands, and he was going to make a choice about a college, uh, not going for the top one. And I thought I could think all the reasons that it was bad. And it was just a miracle that I shut up and had the thought of, he's not asking me what I think. He's telling me what he's going to do. Wouldn't you know, but less than eight weeks later, his wisdom was, was proven. He had made the right choice and it followed with him through college and so many different reasons. But it was just one of those, one of those amazing things of, oh, that's a dad win. I, I'm shifting. I'm going from, no, you have to do these. Cause I remember when we hear their kids, we would tell them, we need to tell you where the lines are. I remember we, there was one time where I was um, disciplining them and they, they were reconciling after. And he said, said it's not always going to be like this. You know that, right? He said, what? He said, it's, it, this isn't, the way that this is all going to go. When you're 18 and out of the house, you're going to make your own decisions. You're not going to have to listen, you know, report to me. There's not going to be any of this stuff. But part of mom and my job is for the next you know decade is to show you where the lines are so you can see where the soccer field is. If you choose to play in inside it, outside it, that's fine. Uh, with one of my kids, I had to say, part of mom and dad's job is to show you that you will run corporations, multiple corporations someday, but ours is not the corporation you're going to run. That's part of our job. <laughs> and he's doing great things too. That kid is going to be, yeah, it'll be, we'll see him on stages, I'm sure. <laughs> oh my. 
this this parenting thing is it's it's exhilarating, it's fulfilling, but it's it's some of the hardest stuff I've ever had to contend with. I never with. knew how stupid. The only thing I could compare to being realizing how stupid and dumb I was was pastoring a church. That's when I realized how ungodly and how screwed up I was because people would tell me like, cause clearly I was missing the boat cause I wasn't doing what they wanted. <laughs> but, wow. but, uh, yeah, parenting, um, I respect people that don't have kids and, um, I have, there are so many lessons that I've learned. Um, hopefully, and, and we knew we had a friend uh, of our families who said that she was going to fund the therapy for her kids. Cause she was going to be able to and say, no, I, that was real. That wasn't a false memory. I really did do that. I really screwed that one up really badly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Wow. Okay. So now this, this, this might be related. It might not be related, but I just loved how, again, you're, you're a long time listener to the show and you, you've listed like four, three or four episodes and conversations that are on your Mount Rushmore of whiskey, jazz, and leadership guests. I would love for you to give them a shout out and explain why these four stand out in your mind as being worthwhile. Well, Connie St. John, I mean, she just brought the magic. She had so many different experiences and she just kind of casually mentioned a part of her life's journey. And you're like, whoa, hold on. <laughs> Could we have a season of episodes about that? Because <laughs> there's so much there. Uh, Dave Be Peacock was, uh, you know, when I, I perked up when he said Anheuser-Busch and even Jim Dinkins, Honey Baked Ham, they're both had this seasoned wisdom of knowing how to bring out the best in people. And it's not just that, like as a coach, all I have to do is help provide the environment for that. But they did it within large corporations. So there were still corporate objectives to get done. Shannon Hammond and Tamara McMillan, oh my goodness, they brought the fire and they spoke truth. I had, you know, I was in a rental. I remember where I was when that episode hit the, the second, the, when um, the second season, I think it was. And when I, when it hit my podcast feed, I was in a rental car in the airport and I was just hooting and hollering and like, yeah, you go. <laughs> challenge me. I want to be challenged because they, they, I just trust their integrity and their passion to change this world and make it better. Yeah. Now, you know, a big part of the work that you do uh, and the big part of the work that I do is talking to executives and giving, you know, I, I like to say that my job as a coach is to uh, help leaders articulate what they already know they really want to do. And then once they can articulate it, then my job shifts to giving them the courage to take the steps that they already know that they need to take in order to do what they really want to do. But a, a lot of that requires being willing to speak truth to power to a certain degree and quite possibly be the only person in their life who will speak truth to power. Uh, how, how does that fit into your upbringing as a as a as a Good church kid. <laughs> Treat other people nicely. We were raised atheist, and, uh, and so that was it. My parents um, became my uh, born again uh, agnostics when they left college, and then born again Pittmans. So, and one of my favorite pictures of them from the '60s is them flipping the bird, sitting on a car, giving the camera a bird. So, I, I had some pretty anti-establishment uh, for, for a period of time anyway, parents sure. that just raised me in that. Um, and the other part was my dad was a doctor in a small town in Maine, small city in Maine. 
And I think the help to my wiring of we're all people. Yeah. People put their pants on one leg at a time and almost to a point of not being impressed by people's titles. Now I, I've learned to soften that some because the titles are important, often show wisdom or, or you know, I, I respect people. I don't necessarily re respect positional authority, but um, that speaking the truth, I think people are are intrigued by that. I, I don't know if this has been your experience, but lately I've had people coming to me saying, I've had the coach that's the cheerleader. Yeah. And that was helpful. It helped me, you know, get a little bit better in alignment with myself and all, but I need something more. And I'm hoping, Mark, that your executive coaching will be the one that will push me a little further. And it's interesting because I'm not the boss. I'm not going to push, but I'm going to call them into a space of greatness. And I'll do it all from the strengths-based way that you're, you've talked about with some of your guests too. Of, I'm going to, just like the toddler, celebrate every step, but I'm not going to do it just and say the outcomes don't matter because there's a goal that they're trying to get. You know, Part of my job is to stand alongside and help them reach the goal that they they articulate. So I yeah. wouldn't be doing it if I didn't do that. And yeah. you're, I'm sure you've seen this too. It's a, it's a real privilege when people start trusting you. That's what I love about executive coaching is it goes everywhere. Yeah. Because people aren't executives. They're people. Yeah, exactly. You know, that that's a big part of a conversation I had earlier today when we were talking with a company and we're trying to explain to a company what it is that we as coaches do. And one of the things that we talked about is the fact that, yeah, we're all trained executive coaches and we're trained leadership coaches, but we're also people coaches. We're life coaches because I don't care how good you are at work. If you're having a bad time at, at home, <laughs> it's going to be really, really hard for you to be amazing at work. And if you're having a bad time at work, I don't care how much you try to compartmentalize, you're going to bring some of that home. So there has to be some sort of recognition that although this is a person with a title with a lot of responsibility, it's still a person and you've got to be able to manage the two. How similar is that to what you might've experienced when you were pastoring a church? That was weird. So pastoring the church was more, I was put in the position of authority um, and I had to really push back against that partly a Gen Xer. And if you know Enneagram, I'm a seven on the Enneagram. So hierarchy is not like, is not my jam. I like to like, let's all work together. And so I wouldn't let people call me pastor um, because they were doing that to make it so that whatever I, they were trying to put something between their own responsibility or their faith and me. Um, and so I said, I don't call you accountant, Bob or auto mechanic, Jane. So, you know, I don't call you by your vocation or your, your job. So don't call me by my job. There was only one person that was allowed to. He was a 20-year-old Wiccan. And he said, What do your parent, what do your kids call you? Do they call you Mark? And I said, Well, no, they call me dad. And he said, What about those of us who you're our dad? Can we call you pastor? Wow. Yeah, I was like, you win, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> you have a special sanction. Wow. So yeah, there's a I really I think it's my passion to help people in all different areas. And that's where leadership, I don't know if you agree with this, but I, for me, leadership isn't positional authority. It's, it's influence. And we all influence people at different parts of our day. Um, so I really, I want to be, that's when actually, when I niched in fundraising for the first 15 years of my career was fundraisingcoach.com and that's still there. But um, my wife knew it was going too narrow because I'm about people. 
and about leadership and vision and, and mission, not about nonprofit management and leadership. Although I'm really good at it. And I think fundraising is the best gig in the world. I love asking people for money. I think it's, I can't understand why people wouldn't want to do that. But it has been really interesting to try to pull back out and and reassert I'm about a I'm about people, not just about nonprofit people. Right. Well, I, I, I got to tell you, the reason I was smiling is because the opening quote in my book, in my 2017 book, was John Maxwell. And John Maxwell said that each of us influences at least 10,000 people during our lifetime. So the question is not whether, but how will you use your influence? So just let that set in. We're, 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 we will each influence 10,000 people in our lifetime. So the question is not if, but how will you use your influence? How does that, that quote, and you can't, you can't, I mean, I mean, you're, you're talking Stephen Covey, but right there on the Mount Rushmore has got to be John Maxwell, pretty close. How does that quote uh, resonate with your life's work? I mean, you're on stages now talking to probably hundreds, if not thousands of people at a time, influencing them. How does that quote resonate with you? Oh, it definitely resonates with me. And it's humbling too, because, you know, there are certain people on your path that you choose not to listen to. And John Maxwell was one of them for me because I'm trying to expand. I realized most of my masters in leadership and, and the books I read and all were all white men. So I was trying to expand that, but he keeps coming out with good stuff like that. It makes it really hard to, <laughs> to avoid. It's like, I really, I really don't want to like you, but you're making it hard. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that the fact that we're going to influence people one of the things that's motivated me since a teenager too is there's in Deuteronomy there talks about um, a righteous man leaves an inheritance for his grand, his children's children, uh, and so for me it was this, not just a financial one which I hope to, but also a spiritual and emotional. I want my grandkids to be better off because of my existence in the world. Should I have them? And there's no pressure on my kids at all. But there's that sense of we have a responsibility to the people around us, mm -hmm. um, and so I want to be the best me, I can be knowing my strengths, but knowing my limitations and helping other people know their strengths and flourish. You've heard this coaching. Isn't it amazing when people are like, I'd really like to do this, but I know I need to be doing this and da, da, da. And you can hear the energy in their voice of, hey, wait, 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 go back. What was that thing you said with the, all the energy? I know I really want to do this. And it'll get them to the end goal just as much as the boring traditional thing. Uh, that's a, isn't that a privilege to be able to say, hey, why don't, why don't you give that a try? Just beta test it. You don't have to commit to it. We can just try it for a week and see how it goes. I usually end that story with, um, and if it doesn't work, you can blame me, right? <laughs> give it a try. If it doesn't work, you can blame me. You know, this, Galen doesn't know what he's talking. <laughs> so I don't know if you know LaVista Jones. Do you listen to her, her Boss Talk podcast? No, I've got to check that out. Pretty, pretty awesome. And she's got a book coming out uh, called Boss Talk, but she talks about the, how her corporate life really impacted her family and her body and her health. And so she had to start taking self-care, but even as a self-employed individual, it started happening too. So the, it was just resonating with me that, yeah, we are, we are intricate and wonderfully complex people or individuals, each of us. You, you mentioned, you mentioned self-care. And this is top of mind because very literally this this morning, I had a conversation with someone who was not my client, but he was in a group coaching uh, program that I facilitated. And he was just saying how much he really needed to put more emphasis on self-care. What's your take on the reason why 
self-care has become such an important part it's almost expected it's it's you know whereas 20 years ago people might look at you differently if you say hey I'm, I, you know I talked to my therapist and I got a coach and I've got an advisor and an accountability partner people might look at, might have looked at you strange 20 years ago if you'd said all that but today they might look if you look at you strange if you were to say I don't have a therapist I don't have an accountability coach uh, I'm doing this on my own um I think it's intriguing to me that like the, one of the things that the the generation coming into the workforce now is doing, and I think is their job is always the new people coming into the workforce is to help change culture for better, mm -hmm. even though it doesn't feel like that to the people that have lived through the other culture. <laughs> it feels annoying. But um, there's a part of self-care that I think it's a reaction against the systems in the West that only seem to work best when they totally dehumanized wow. the people in the system. Uh, so if my manifesto a few years ago, I wrote a, a manifesto for our company because I figured as I bring people on board, as I'm certifying coaches and all, I want them to know what is it the game they're playing. The the first line is we stand against systems and structures that grind leaders to a pulp, sucking all they can out of them before spitting them out to replace by the next victim. I think there's a there's a place where people are just they're getting fed up with that. And yet there's still enough of that in the systems both systemically and in the people that are in the in positional authority that think that that's just the way it is and there is an aspect the this the stinky part is it's not just an either or there is an aspect as you know as a leader you just got to suck it up and do it that no one else is coming so there is that aspect of it doesn't all feel good i i, I feel like a lot of the pursue your passion stuff um has done people a disservice because i think it's couched in the terms of it's all wonderful and the money will follow. Well, yeah. not necessarily. My first book, nobody wanted. <laughs> the first book I wrote, it was just, it was exactly the Zig Ziglar thing of nobody wants a drill, they want a hole. So mm. I, I gave him a drill. I gave a goal setting workbook and I was so excited because it was so good. And I still use it to this day in other aspects, but I don't think I've sold more than like half a dozen in 20 years. Wow. I give it away wow. now. Man, I tell you, I have so enjoyed this conversation. I, I, I've got to bring you into the VIP room if you've got more time, man, because I, I've got to ask you, 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 you said, and we talked a little bit about this jazz metaphor and you did a great job of, of kind of explaining what that means. But I love what you said when you said that, you know, so many people say that it's about go with the flow or improvision. But you can't do that without hours and hours and hours of boring practice. And that reminds me of, you know, people know that my, one of my favorite invisible board members is Kobe Bryant. And Kobe Bryant once said, I have found the secret to success. There is a secret to success. And that secret is hard work. And there's no other way to get there. There is no other way to get there. And I just really want to talk to you more about what does hard work look like when you end up doing something that you enjoy? Does it still look like work when you're doing something that you enjoy? So, I mean, I, I got to ask you about that, but I, I don't want to give that away for free. So before before I toast you out, man, talk a little bit about, because I haven't had any VIPs on the show. I've had some listeners on the show before, but not VIPs. What do you get in the VIP room? The, because there's a VIP conversation with each of my guests, and I can tell you that that's the good stuff. But I mean, you know, this is my show, so they kind of expect your guests bring it. So I understand why people wouldn't be here. 
you ask like secret questions or special questions, not secret questions, but you just, you have developed, you're such a good interviewer. By the time people get to the VIP room, the guests, they're trusting you and they're coming forth with some stuff that like none of the stuff I said so far in our, our in our previous conversation on the other side of the rope was actually what most podcasts talk about. So I already know that this is going to be a good conversation, even it's a special conversation, but you unearth stuff with, from pe- with people that, um, it's it's amazingly good stuff. It's like the top shelf, you know, the special barrel aged uh, distill, you know, distillers only choice. That's it. That's it. So again, we're we're going to continue to have this conversation in the VIP room. And if you're not a VIP, I, I don't know what else to tell you. I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, it's only like uh, a couple bucks, but man, you get such rich insight. So, uh, Mark, man, raise your uncle nearest. It's going to be one last call for for Fawn Weaver and Victoria Butler. Uh, You know, we're drinking your juice. So cheers, man. Thank you so much for everything that you shared with us and for everything that you're doing for thousands and thousands of people. Not only the folks who are who are in the audience for the stages that you talk on, uh, but for all of the leaders that you're coaching, because Everyone needs someone to speak into their lives. And as uh, Ms. Shana Hammond tells me on a weekly basis, uh, everyone needs someone to call them higher and or remind them of who they are. We all need that from time to time. And that's the work that you're doing, man. I just really appreciate that. So raise your glass. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guests and show exclusives. Cheers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.